giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Christopher Nguyen, CEO of Idomatic, which provides knowledge-first AI for industrial automation. Christopher, thanks for joining me. Thank you. So I was prepping for this interview, and I noticed something that jumped out at me that we have in common, and that is your first computer was the TI-99-4A. No kidding. And that was also my first computer. Oh, okay. <laughs> you had no storage, correct? No, no storage. Everything was off of the solid state disks. And I remember I was a little late to it. My parents actually got it for me. I was probably, uh, I think I was nine or 10. And my parents got it for me at a garage sale. And so all I had was the manual and the basic manual that came with it. And because it had no storage, I needed to type in the programs that were in that the back of that book mm-hmm. from scratch. And there was no way to save them. So you would type them in. <laughs> oh, my God. Every single day, the same code type over and over again. And hopefully you don't turn it off. Yeah, exactly. There definitely were times where... It would just be on in my room because I didn't want to lose what I had spent all day typing in. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, you know, my proudest moment was my sister walked in the living room and, you know, there was no monitors, right? You connected directly to the TV. To the TV, yeah. And, uh, you know, people, young, younger people may not know the term character graphics, right? Which is you you pick and you poke the, 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 the character space and then you put them together into a, a graphic image. And I, and I painstakingly on graph paper created a car and converted to hex and then poked it into these characters and put them together. And my sister walked out and said, Oh my God, you made a car. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was a good time. It was difficult back then. I feel like I learned a lot in an environment where I see people learning today. It's a lot more of a complicated environment. Um, They're much higher up the stack than we were back then. And I don't know, I feel like I actually sort of had it easy. Well, in many ways, that very abstraction to see jobs like to talk about higher software abstraction to make you mm-hmm. more productive. I think it's absolutely that, that powerful. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and Mark Andreessen, my friend, likes to talk about, you know, how software is eating the world. But it turns out there, there's a, there's one perspective where people have gone up the stack a little too far, too fast and too much, mm-hmm. which do physical being the industry that I work on. You know, our previous company was acquired by Panasonic and I've been working on industrial AI for, for the last four, four and a half years. And it's very hard for us to find people with the right, you know, physics or electroengineering background, the, the right science understanding to help, you know, automate and build some of these systems. Because everybody's in software now. Yeah. Why does physical sciences background matter for this work? Let me give you a couple of examples, right? Yeah. One example is one of our customers, very, very large global conglomerate doing marine navigation and marine sensors. And one of the products they do is fish finding, right? So that amateurs like you and me, we go, you know, hold one of these uh, systems and shoot it down straight to the ocean. Uh, a, a sonar beam goes down, kind of like uh, submarines, right? But, but yeah. an image, hopefully an image would come back, right? And so to build a system to convert all of that uh, into something other than sort of jumbled, what they call uh, echograms, you know, maybe convert mm-hmm. to a fish image. You have to build a lot of machine intelligence, AI, machine learning, and so on. But just to understand the data 
and make the right decisions about how to do that, you, you need to understand the physics of echoes, of sound wave echoes in the ocean. And if you can't do that and you got to work with another engineer to tell you how to do that, it really slows things down a lot, right? So knowing the, the equation, but also have a, having a physical intuition for how it all works can make, make or break the, the success of, a, of an engineer working on something like that. Uh, another example is um, we worked on avionics. Don't blame me for this, but if you have had uh, poor experience with Wi-Fi on a plane, <laughs> you know we may be involved in one way or another. Panasonic avionics, <laughs> but the antenna array that sits on top of the plane to receive satellite signal and send satellite signals. So you, so you can expect there's some kind of optimization involved. Uh, it's not just line of sight, right? If there's a cloud coming nearby then there's some distortion and there's some optimization that needs to take place. Uh, again, a, a, an understanding of, at least if you remember, if not an, a, an expert in college physics about antenna radiation patterns and so on, right, uh, would help tremendously uh, a data scientist or an engineer working on that problem. Uh, whereas somebody who's sort of pure computer scientist would, would struggle a lot and probably give up with that problem. Yeah. This may be a little bit of a facetious question uh, or leading question. I'm not sure which, but like, if we have artificial intelligence, why do we need people to do this stuff? Mm. <laughs> well, I have a, I have a broader, uh, you know, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll I've thought about that a lot, and I'll answer it in a broad sense. But I think you can mm -hmm. you can specialize it. the The problem with machine learning, at least today. And, and I really think for, you know, for a very long time, for the, the rest of the century, at least, is that it is trained on data, right? Mm -hmm. And data is past examples. And when I say past, I include the present. In other words, whatever it is that the alg our algorithms learn, they learn the world as it is. Now, we're always trying to change the world in some way. We're always trying to change the world to what we wish it to be, not what it is. And so it's the humans that express that aspiration. I want my machine to behave better in some way, or I want my algorithms not to have this you know, built-in bias, to, you know, when it makes a credit decision that affects someone's lives, right? If it's pure machine learning and data, it will indeed reflect all the decisions that have ever been made. Right. And it'll have all those built-in biases. So, you know, there, there, there's a big topic there to unpack and who's responsible for doing what. Uh, but I think come back to your to your question. We'll always need humans to express what it is that is the world that you want in the next minute, the next day, the next week, or the next fifty years. Yeah. So let's talk more about the ethics uh, or biases that can be baked into to AI. How do you prevent that automatic? Uh, as I say, this is a big topic. But let me, yeah. let me begin by saying that actually most of us don't know what we mean when we say bias. Mm -hmm. uh, or uh, put it more broadly, we don't agree on the on the meaning. The word bias in colloquial conversation always comes with a negative connotation. On the one hand, yeah. On the other hand, in machine learning, bias is inherent. Like you cannot have machine work without bias. So clearly, those two words must mean something slightly different, even though they reflect the same thing. You know, the, the same underlying physics, if you will. Mm. So, so first, you know, before people get into what they think are very well-informed debates, they must first agree on a framework for terms that they're they're using. 
Now, of course, I can accommodate and say, okay, I think I know what you mean by that term. And then we'll, then we'll just, so let's take the colloquial meaning of a bias, right? And when we say bias, we usually mean some built-in prejudice. It may be implicit or it may be explicit that causes a human or a machine to make a decision that discriminates against someone, mm-hmm. right? And that discrimination, and here's the thing, right? We've got to think about intent versus impact. Right. Is it okay for the effect to be quote unquote biased if I didn't intend it? Or it doesn't matter what, you know, what my intent was. It's only the impact that matters. That's another dimension that people have to agree or even, even agree to disagree on before they start going in these circular arguments. But let's, let's focus on, you know, for now, let's say it's the impact that matters, right? It doesn't matter what the intent is, particularly because machines have as as present, there's no intent, right? Right. So, for example, when when the Uber vehicle, you know, a number of years ago, hit and killed a bicyclist, right? The, the, yep. There was the, there was no traceable intent, certainly not in the system designer, you know, to, to cause that to happen. But yet it happened, right? And and the person did die. Mm-hmm. So coming back to your question, I, I know that I'm, I haven't gotten to the question because I'm, I'm unpacking a lot of things that otherwise an answer would make no sense or it would, yeah, it would, no. it would not have the sense meant. So coming back, how do we prevent bias as an effect from happening in, in our system? And an answer that I would propose is to stop thinking about it in terms of point answers. In other words, it's not that people say, well, myself, Erwin said, right? Earlier, I said, is it the data? Well, if the data, does that absolve the people who build the algorithms? And if it's in the algorithms, does that absolve the people who use it, right? Mm -hmm. I had some conversation with some friends from Europe, and they say, in America, you guys are so obsessed with the blame on the user, right? Guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? Right. But I think to answer your question in a very thoughtful manner, we must first accept responsibility throughout the entire chain and agree on what it is is the outcome that we want to have uh, at least effect right and then the responsibility falls on all chains all parts of the chain and if one day it you know it may be hey you gotta tune the algorithm a certain way another day it may be hey collect this kind of data and, and another day it might be make sure that when you finally output the decision, that you tweak it a certain way, you know, to, to affect the outcome that you want. I think my, what I've described is the most intellectually honest statement. And somebody listening to this is going to have a perspective that disagrees vehemently with one of the things I just said, because they don't want that responsibility. I like it though, because it, it recognizes that we're, we're creating it. It, it may be a tool and, and tools can be used for anything, but as the creators of that tool, we do have responsibility for, or I think we have responsibility for what that is going to do. And if not us, then who? That's right. Yeah. But, you know, if, if you follow the debate, you will find that there are absolutists, right? Who say, no, that's not my problem, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, the user, the decision maker, or the data provider, but my algorithms, you know, I have to optimize it this way, and it's going to output exactly what the data told it to. Mm-hmm. The rest is your problem. So it strikes me in, in in hearing you describe what's involved, then then especially at the state 
that machine learning is at now, it probably varies or, or what you are going to do specifically varies based on what you're trying to achieve and maybe even the industry that it's in, like avionics yep. and what you need to do there may be different than energy. Yep. Or, or more broadly, physical industries versus mm-hmm. you know, if a plane falls out of the air or a car hits somebody, somebody actually dies. You know, if you get one algorithm, a particular algorithm wrong at Google, maybe you click on the wrong ad. So I, I, I really advocate thinking about the impact and not just the basic algorithms. Yeah. So tell me more about the actual product or, or services that Idomatic provides and also who the customers are. So, uh, yeah, I think what we discussed is quite relevant to that. I think it does lead, uh, you know, in, in very, very real perspective directly into that, right? Mm-hmm. We do what's called knowledge first AI. And that knowledge first, as opposed to knowledge second or knowledge third, right? Or, or no knowledge at all. You know, there's very, you know, you know, strong schools of thought that says with sufficient data, you know, we can create AI to do everything. You know, data is you know, reflecting the world as, as I mentioned, as in the past, right? As it is, not as what mm-hmm. we want it to be. When you apply it to some of the concrete things that we do, you know, let's take a use case like predictive maintenance of equipment, right? You, you, you want to be able to, you know, to save costs and even to save lives, you want to replace things, service things before they actually fail. Failure is very costly. It's, it's far more costly than the equipment itself. Today, the, the state of the art is preventive maintenance, not predictive, right? Preventive means let's just every six months, every one year, uh, replace all the lights, you know, because it's too costly to replace them one by one when they fail, right? Of course, in the past, even you know, lots of industries today still do what's called reactive maintenance. You know, fix it when it fails. So predictive maintenance is the state of the art. The challenge is how do you get data and train enough machine learning intelligence, uh, machine intelligence to, to essentially predict. And the prediction precisely means the following. Can you tell me with some probability that this compressor for this HVAC system, this air conditioning system, uh, may fail within the next month. Uh, and it turns out machine learning cannot do that. Ooh, that's the twist. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I know a lot of people listening is going to sit up and say, Christopher doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> but I really know, I really know what the hell I'm talking about because we've been part of an industri- industrial giant. I'll tell you what machine learning can do and what it cannot do. What it can do is, you know, with the data that's available, the main punchline, the main reason here is that there's not enough past examples of actual failures of certain types. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of data. We're swimming in data, but we're not actually swimming in cleanly recorded failures that are well classified. And machine learning is about learning from past examples, right? Except today, our algorithms need a lot of past examples, mm-hmm. you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of past examples in order for it to discover those repeating patterns. So we have a lot of data at places like Panasonic, Samsung, Intel, GE, all the physical industries. But these are just sensor data that's recording mostly normal operation. When a failure happens, that tends to be rare. Hopefully, hopefully failures are rare, right? And then they're very specific. So it turns out that the what's so-called the label data is insufficient for machine learning. So what machine learning can do is do what's called anomaly detection. And what that is is, you know, look at all the normal patterns 
And then when something abnormal appears on the horizon, it says, hey, something, something is weird. I haven't seen this before. But it cannot identify what it is, which is only half of predictive maintenance, right? Because you have to identify what the problem is so you can replace that compressor or that filter. And it turns out humans are very good. Human experts are very good at that second part. I, I, the first step improvement might be to say, let's get machine learning to detect anomalies. And then let's get human experts to actually do fault prediction. And after you do this for a while, which is what we did at Panasonic in the last you know, three, four years uh, across the global AI units, we said, well, wait a minute. Why, why are we making these very expensive human experts do this if we can somehow codify their domain expertise? And so that's what Itomatic is. We, we have developed a bunch of techniques, algorithms, and systems that run as you know, SaaS software to help people codify their domain expertise combine it with machine learning, and then deploy the whole thing as a system. The codified expertise, there's a word for that, right? Probably you're referring to expert systems? Yes, yes. Yeah. Expert systems is one way to codify domain expertise, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at, at, at the very basic level, you know, you and I, we, we wrote physical, I mean, actual basic programs before. You can think of that as codifying your human knowledge, right? You're telling the computer exactly what to do. So expert systems of the past is one way to do so. But what I'm referring to is a more evolved, a more advanced mm -hmm. perspective on that, which is how do you codify it in such a way that you can seamlessly combine with machine learning? Expert systems and, and machine learning are kind of like two islands that don't meet. But how do you do it in such a way that, that you can codify human knowledge and then benefit as more data comes in, right? smoothly move into this this idea asymptotically, this world where data tells you everything, which, which it never will. And, and so the way we do that, the naive way, uh, as I mentioned, is simply to just write it down as a bunch of rules. And the problem is rules conflict with each other, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we, 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 we humans work on heuristics, right? Whatever it is you tell me to do, you could be an expert and you start teaching me and you say, okay, he, so here are the rules. And then once I run the rules, you say, well, and there are some exceptions. Right. Mm -hmm. And then can you tell me all the exceptions? No, you can't, right? You have to use judgment. Okay, well, what is that? So the way we codify it is you can think of that that evolution. I'll, I'll give you one concrete example from the machine learning perspective, right? So people that are machine learning experts can see how we do things that are different. There's something in the train in the machine learning process called the loss function. Have you heard of that term? Uh no. Yeah. So it's very simple. Training, uh, which I'm sure everybody has heard, is really about how do I tweak the parameters inside the algorithm so that eventually it gives the correct answer. Mm -hmm. And so this process is repeated millions of times or hundreds of thousands of times. But let's say the first time it gives you a random answer. And then, but you know what the right answer should be, right? These are right. training examples. So you compute a, an error. You say, you know, if you, if you output a five and the answer is actually six. So I said, oh, you're off by one positive one and so on. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a loss function. In this case, it's just simply the subtraction, right, uh, of one. And then that signal, that, that number one, is somehow fed back into the training system that say, well, you know, you were close, but you're off by one. Mm -hmm. And the next time, maybe you're off by 0.5. Next, and then maybe you're off by negative two and so on and so forth. That value is computed by what's called a loss function, right? That's machine learning because you have all these examples. Well, Human knowledge can be applied as a loss function too, 
right? A, a simple example is that you you don't have all the data examples, mm-hmm. but you have a physical equation, right? Uh, if you throw a ball into the air, it follows a parabolic pattern, and we can model that exactly, right? Analytic equation. That is a way to produce the correct answer, uh, but there's noises in them, and so we can apply that function back as a as a loss function to encode that human knowledge. Of course, things are always not always as simple as a par- parabolic equation. But a human expert can say the temperature on this can never exceed 23, right? If it exceeds 23, life is going to end as we know it. There's going to be disaster. Uh, you can put into the loss function an equation that says if the temperature is you predict or you know is greater than 23. You know, give it a very high loss, right? Give it a very strong signal that this cannot be, and so you, th- then your machine learning function being trained can get that signal coming back and adjust the parameters appropriately. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example of how how we codify human knowledge in, in a way that is more than just expert systems. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Now, is is there a way once you have the system up and running and it is making decisions? to then feed back into that cycle and improve the model itself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think there's a parallel to what I say during training, Yeah. right? To also while it's in production, both in real time, meaning one example at a time, as well as in batch, right? After you've done a bunch of these and, and so on. In fact, the, the first predictive maintenance, successful predictive maintenance system we deployed uh, when we were part of Panasonic employs a human being at the feedback end, right? So our system would try to learn as much as it can and then try to predict the probability of, of failure of, of some piece of equipment. And the human being at the other would say, okay, yeah, that, that looks reasonable. But a lot of times they would say, that's clearly wrong, right? Look, look mm-hmm. at this uh, sensor over here. The pressure is, is high and you didn't take that into account. So that's a process that we use both to certainly improve the output itself, but also to feedback to improve our our predictive AI. I wanted to tell you all about something I've been working on quietly for the past year or so, and that's AgencyU. AgencyU is a membership-based program where I work one-on-one with a small group of agency founders and leaders toward their business goals. We do one-on-one coaching sessions and also monthly group meetings. We start with goal setting, advice, and problem solving based on my experiences over the last 18 years of running ThoughtBot. As we progress as a group, we all get to know each other more, and many of the agency you members are now working on client projects together and even referring work to each other. Whether you're struggling to grow an agency, taking it to the next level and having growing pains, or a solo founder who just needs someone to talk to, in my 18 years of leading and growing ThoughtBot, I've seen and learned from a lot of different situations, and I'd be happy to work with you. Learn more and sign up today at thoughtbot.com slash agency U. That's A-G-E-N-C-Y, the letter U. So on the customer side, who whether you can share specific customers or not, like what kinds of companies are, are your customers? Yeah, so I've mentioned in passing a, a number. So Panasonic, you know, is is one of our customers. When I say Panasonic, uh, Panasonic is a global giant, so it's run as individual companies. So, uh, for example, Avionics, Automotive, Cold Chain, how a fish gets from the ocean to your table, 
Panasonic has a big market share in making sure that the, 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 the you know, everywhere in the chain you know, that fish is refrigerated. So it's called the cold supply chain or cold chain. Yep. Uh, supermarkets, right? Their refrigeration systems keep our uh, food fresh. And if, if that goes down in an unplanned manner, then you know they lose entire days or weeks of uh, uh, of sales. I mentioned the example of, of Furuno, F-U-R-U-N-O. Uh, if you go to you know some marine uh, marina, uh, say Half Moon Bay, California, you would see on the masts uh, uh, most of the navigation equipment is a Furuno, uh, you know the, the white and blue logo. Okay. Uh, so we help them with with those systems and fish finding systems, as well as off the coast of Japan, there's a practice called as fixed net fishing. What that is is like miles and miles of netting. And large schools of fish would swim from the front gates, called A, into B. And once they get to B, they, you know, it's, it's set such a way that they cannot go back to A. But you know, it's very large, so they feel like they're swimming in the ocean still. And eventually to trap C. And so, you know, Furuno is, is working on techniques to, to both detect what kind of fish uh, is fl- fl- flowing through, as well as actually count or estimate the number. So that fishermen can determine exactly when to go and and collect their catch. Mm. Right. So I, I can go on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> lots of these really interesting physics-related and, and physical use cases. Yeah. So is Itomatic actually spun off from Panasonic? Yes, spin off. I think legally speaking, that is not yeah. the correct term uh, because we're independent. We're, we're yeah. you know, Panasonic does not have any shares. But in terms of our working relationship as you know, customer and, and vendor is as good as it ever was. Yeah. What went into that decision-making process to do that? To do this, the, the so-called spin-off? Yeah. Lots of things. I'm that, sure it was a complicated decision. <laughs> uh, you know, like we used to say at Google, you know, you know like the, the, to decide where to put a data center, lots of things have to intersect just the right way, including the alignment of the stars. <laughs> In our case, it's a number of things. Number one, the business model, just to say at a very high level, it makes a lot of sense for us to be an independent company outside of, uh, otherwise inside a, if, if we're a small unit inside a parent company, the business incentives are very different from if you're, you're a startup. That's, that's one. And it, it, the change is positive to both sides. Uh, number two, in terms of venture capital, right? As, as you know, today, you know, once you're an independent company, you can you can access to a very large amount of scale in mm-hmm. such a way that even a global giant cannot doesn't have the same model to fund. Uh, number three, certainly the the scope of the business. We want to be able to apply. You know, everything that I talk to you here is is actually an open source project. We we have something called human first AI, broader than just knowledge first, and so. Being able to put it out into the open source and being able to have other people contribute to it is much easier as an independent startup than if it's a business unit. And then finally, of course, you know, aspirations, right? Uh, myself and, and the rest, uh, the rest of the team, we can move a lot faster. You know, people are more passionate about the ownership of what they do. You know, so it's much better set up as an independent company. Mm-hmm. Were there things from Panasonic, either in sort of culture or the way that the business worked, that you specifically, even though you had the opportunity to be independent, you said, "Hey, that was pretty good. Let's keep that going." Well, I can I can comment on the culture of Panasonic itself. It's something that was I was surprised by. 
this is 100 year old. The, the anniversary was 2018. I gave a talk in, in Tokyo. So 100 year old conglomerate, you know, Japan might seem mm-hmm. very stodgy. And <laughs> sorry to say many ways it is. But I was very impressed, and, and I say this as sort of a headline in cocktail conversation. I said the culture of engineering at Panasonic is far more like the, the Google that I knew than it is different. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, uh, very little empire building. People are very engineering driven. You know, there's a lot of cordial discussions and so on. When people go into a meeting, that I was very impressed by this, right? The Japanese engineers in Panasonic has always been really well prepared. You know, by the time they got to the meeting, even though they are in this context, our customers, they will come with a slide deck, like 30 slides, talking through the entire use case. And they thought about this, they thought about that. And so, you know, I'm sitting there just, just absorbing it, just learning the whole thing. I, I really enjoyed that part of being, being part of Panasonic. So yeah. And, and many of those folks are, are now lifelong friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that you've you've tried to maintain that engineering focused culture and great place. Well, when we were acquired by Panasonic, both Sugasan, the CEO, and and Miyabe-san, the CTO, said the following: "He said we we want you to infect Panasonic, mm-hmm. not the other way around." <laughs> mm-hmm. From their perspective, uh, you know, we're the Silicon Valley. Uh, set up right, and and they want this this innovation, you know, a fresh startup, you know, not just the algorithms, but also the culture. And and they were true to their word. Uh, we we kept an office, our own unit, uh, kept our office in Mountain, downtown Mountain View, and folks were sent in, right, seconded to us to pick up our our ways and 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 means. What I enjoyed the part that I just shared with you is what what I didn't expect to learn, but but what I did learn. Yeah, in retrospect. Yeah. As you, you know, set out on everything you want to achieve, what are you worried about? What do you think the biggest sort of hurdles are going to be that you need to overcome to make a successful business, successful product? Well, I've, I've done this multiple times. So, you know, people like to say, you've seen this movie before, but of course, every every movie is told differently and the scenes are different, the actors are different and so on. Of course, the times are different. Uh, so concretely, our, our immediate next hurdle, right? Like you have to have proof points along the way. So we've got good revenues already, right? As a, as a startup, uh, less than one year old, we have unusually good revenues, right? Mm-hmm. But mainly because of our deep relationships in this particular industry. The next concrete proof point is a series of things, metrics that says we have good product market fit. Uh, and of course, product market fit means more than just a great product idea. It's the it's the great product idea that is executed in a way that the market wants it in the next quarter, not not ten years from now. Right. So product market fit is that iteration, and, and we're quite fortunate to have already a customers that are what we call design partners that, that we work with. So, mm-hmm. you know, hearing from that diverse set is is pretty good confidence that if they want it, that other people will want it as well. And then after that. Certainly after in timing, but in the doing is, is now is scaling our sales efforts, uh, our sales volume beyond just the founder led volume that, that we currently have. So building the sales team and so on. But these are things that are, you know, very, I would say generally understood, but it does have to still be, you, you still got to sweat it. You got to still got to do it. It doesn't happen automatically. I, I think the, the, the much bigger 
challenge that I see, and maybe it's an opportunity, depending on how you how you how you think about it, is this. Um, I'll call it a cultural barrier. Uh, Silicon Valley, and, and, and in particular, the academic side of, of, of us, right? And and uh, you may know I used to be a professor. So when I say academic, I'm talking about myself as well. So any criticism is self-directed. <laughs> uh, we tend to be purists, right? The purism of today, if I can use that term, is data. And so whenever I talk about knowledge-first AI, it offends the sensibilities of some people. Say, you mean you're going back to expert systems? You mean you are not going to be, you know, extolling the virtues of machine learning and so on? And I have to explain, data is nice if you have it, but 90% of the world doesn't have the data, right? And, 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 and you do need to come up with these new techniques to mm-hmm. combine human knowledge with machine learning. But we, we look forward to being the, uh, the the vanguard of that revolution, if you will, to say maybe it's a step backward. I think of it as a step forward of really harmoniously combining human knowledge and and machine data to build these what we call AI systems, like these the, these powerful systems that, that we're we're purporting to build, and and that's almost directly at odds with uh, the school of thought where people say you know eventually we'll have all the data. And maybe as you start at the beginning, right, we don't need humans anymore. Right. So I, I, I will fight that battle, right? Yeah. The customers that you talked about, a lot of them seem to be pretty big enterprises. So as you talk about scaling sales beyond the founder-led sales that you're doing now, do you think that you're, are you, are you continuing to sell to enterprises or do you ultimately envision the product being accessible to any company? Well. I would say both, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I say that in, in a very careful sense because it's very important, you know, building business to focus. And, and so let me yeah. break down what I mean by both, not just from some uh, ambitious saying, yeah, you know, A and B. Right. Uh, we, we will focus on enterprise uh, as a matter of business, right? And, and the reason for that is, A, that's where the money is, uh, but B, but more importantly, it's also where the readiness is, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we've gone through... It's it's amazing. It's 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 been a decade since that first New York Times, what I call the cat's paper, that talk about the Google Rain project. We've gone through a decade of of the hype and and everything, uh, but the, this vast physical industry, right, the industrials of the world, is is ready. Uh, when I say ready, it means that people are now sophisticated. You know, they mm-hmm. they don't look at it with wide eyes and saying, "Please sprinkle a little bit of AI on my system." So so they have teams. And, and they can benefit from what we do you know, at the scale of what I've just described. Uh, but the reason I say both is because, you know, quite happily, it is an open source project, right? Our roadmap is designed with our design partners, but it's, once it's out there, right, the, the, the system can be contributed to by, by others, you know, and, and open, the nature of open source is such that people tend to use it more than contribute. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think, a lot of the smaller companies and smaller teams, once they overcome the, this cultural barrier of applying knowledge as opposed to pure data, I think they can really take advantage of, uh, of our technology. I'm uh, glad you segued there because I was going to bring us there too, which is that, that open source that you've made available. Was it ever a question whether you could build a business where you were also open sourcing the software behind it? It was absolutely a question 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the industry has evolved. And, and now you and I talked about the TI-994A. 
I, I was already writing what's called public domain software, you know, be, before the term mm -hmm. open source, right? Uh, 10 years ago, uh, CIOs would say, why would I do away with the relationship with a big, like a Microsoft or an Oracle in favor of this unreliable, unknown open source, uh, right? Mm-hmm. It turns out, as we now look back, it was nothing to do with the business model. It was the immaturity of, of open source. Today, it is the opposite. Today, people don't you know, worry about the lock-in uh, with the vendor that whose source code that they don't have. But I think equally important, source code is no longer a competitive advantage. Let me say that again. Mm -hmm. Source code is no longer that intellectual property, right? You know, CIOs today want to be able to have the peace of mind that if some company locks them out or, or the company becomes defunct, that the engineers still have access to that source code, right? Mm -hmm. So that they can build it. But that is not the, the, the real value. Amazon, Microsoft Azure, and, and GCP, Google have proven that people are very willing to pay for some experts to run operationally these systems so that they can concentrate on what they do best. So every day today, you know, every month we're sending checks to, to uh, AWS, right? They're mm -hmm. running something that, that my team can easily run, but probably at much higher cost. Uh, but even at cost uh, parity, I would like, you know, my team members to be focused on knowledge first AI rather than the running of an email system or the running of, of some compute. So likewise, the, the value that our customers get from us is not the, the, the source code, right? Mm -hmm. But they're very willing for, to, for us to run this, this big industrial AI system so that they can focus on the, the actual work of codifying their expert uh, knowledge. And, and by the way, that I, I probably give too wrong an answer to that. Another <laughs> way is to simply look at the public market, that they're very, very well rewarded companies that are entirely uh, open source. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was great. Thank you for stopping by and sharing with me. I really appreciate it. If folks want to find more out about Atomic or get in touch with you or follow along, where are all the places that they can do that? Uh, I think the website, right? Itomatic.com. It's just like automatic, except it starts with AI. So I think the website is a great place to start to, uh, to contact us. Wonderful. Thank you again. Awesome. Thank you. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.